0: Listening to Finding Humanity. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. As the world looks beyond the COVID 19 pandemic, it's clear that we need a renewed sense of shared humanity. This special series of the Finding Humanity podcast will ask why, where, and how we can build back better avoiding repeating mistakes of the past, and leaving no one behind. In each episode, I will be joined by Mary Robinson, former President of Ireland, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and Chair of the Elders, to draw on the wisdom, expertise, and life experiences of members of the Elders, a group of leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. In this series, we will unpack critical social and political issues with former presidents and prime ministers, UN officials, Nobel Peace Laureates, freedom fighters, and human rights champions. In this episode, we explore climate justice. We discuss why world leaders must frame climate action in terms of opportunity as well as threats, and examine the importance of the Biden presidency in the fight against climate change.
1: We got here because uh, nobody was really conscious of what we were doing. We were destroying Mother Nature.
0: That's Juan Manuel Santos, a Nobel Peace Laureate who served as the president of Colombia from 2010 to 2018.
1: The best people to consult on this issue are the indigenous communities. indigenous communities are the ones that really appreciate how us humans, have been so disrespectful with nature. They have been advocating to protect nature for a long, long time. That's how we got here, by ignoring the very different, but very numerous warnings that we had in the last decades. I must confess, I was not an environmental advocate until about 12 or 13 years ago, uh, until I became president. I was one of those uh, citizens of the world who was ignorant on this issue. Just a few days later, after I got inaugurated, the worst Niña phenomenon hit Colombia. And in my administration, the first two years was to administer a country that was almost completely flooded. We had not experienced so much rain and so much uh, destruction.
0: Much like President Santos, Mary Robinson also underwent a journey of transformation. As a former president of Ireland from 1990 to 1997, Mary did not include climate on her agenda. But when she became the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, she began to understand
2: the climate challenge. And I remember quite humbly saying to myself, how could I have missed this? This is the biggest human rights challenge of all. And I missed it because in Ireland and in New York, where I was, and in Geneva, where I had been, it wasn't so evident. It wasn't a daily occurrence. It was in the poorest parts of the world that it was disproportionately happening. And When I realized how much it was affecting the very poorest countries in Africa, disproportionately, devastatingly, totally disturbing them. I wrote a book of 11 stories on climate justice, and nine of them involved women trying to make their communities resilient. Indigenous communities, poor communities, because I was so affected by what I had missed. That was how I came to it, through the reality of people's lives. And you refer to it as climate justice, and we're hearing that word a little more.
0: What does that term actually mean for those who are hearing it for the first time?
2: Well, over time, I kind of refined it to being essentially five layers of injustice, and there are probably more. But the first layer was the one that I encountered first. The disproportionate impact on the poorest countries because of their location and small island states and indigenous communities who were least responsible for the problem. So they were buffeted and badly affected by something they weren't causing. And that was, to me, a real injustice. And then the second layer was the gender dimension within that, that women's roles are very often different. They have less power. They often have less land rights. They have less access to credit. The third layer is the one that children keep talking to us about, the intergenerational injustice.
0: Experts frame intergenerational justice simply as the fairness between generations, that present generations have a responsibility to future generations.
2: Thank goodness for Greta Thunberg and so many millions now of young people very informed about the science, asking us to listen to the science, and concerned about whether they will have a future. And They're right to be concerned, but it's not fair, as children, that they have to take that burden. They shouldn't. We should assume that burden, not them. The fourth layer is a subtle one, the different pathways to development of developed and developing countries. The pathway to development of the developed world was fossil fuel. We built our economies on fossil fuel. Now. We have to wean ourselves off with just transition, acknowledging the workers, not forgetting about them, but actually making them part of moving forward into new jobs, green jobs. And then the fifth injustice was the one I came to last, but very strongly now the injustice to nature, the loss of biodiversity, the extinction of species.
0: With Antarctic heat waves melting glaciers, wave after wave of drought and wildfire, and an unremitting string of megastorms. The effects of climate change have become ever more visible. The last six years have been the hottest on record, with new data showing that 2020 tied with 2016 as the hottest year ever recorded. The current rate of global greenhouse emissions has a dire effect on people and the planet. Climate change could displace 2 billion people due to rising ocean levels, cost the global economy trillions of dollars, and cause upwards of 250,000 additional deaths per year, all before the year 2100.
1: Too many people today still ignore what is happening. They don't want to accept what is happening, and they don't want to make an effort to change things. And this pandemic that we are going through is a big challenge. We must convince people that this pandemic is very small compared to the effects of climate change.
0: In December 2015, 195 countries came together to adopt the Paris Climate Agreement. Under this legally binding treaty, Signatories agree to limit global temperature rise to well below two degrees Celsius, preferably to 1.5 degrees Celsius. While a couple of degrees doesn't sound like much, every fraction of a degree matters, and the world will experience devastating and irreversible impacts should we collectively fail to achieve the target set under the Paris Agreement. These include increasingly severe storms,
2: droughts, and making it more difficult for people to grow food. So the Paris Agreement asked the scientists, please explain, is there a difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees? And if we have to, how do we stay at 1.5 degrees? They said there is a very big difference between 1.5 degrees warming and 2 degrees warming. And that difference is that probably the coral reefs would disappear. Probably the Arctic ice would disappear. And the permafrost would be likely to melt hugely and throw up not just carbon dioxide, but methane, which is even more lethal, if I could put it that way. And therefore, the scientists said the whole world must stay at or below 1.5 degrees. And so we now see countries committing to reduce and to limit and to meet that goal of net zero, zero carbon, zero emissions by 2050, to meet that scientific requirement, if you like. And that is so important. Whilst the Paris Agreement
0: was historic, there's a growing concern from experts, citizens, and activists that commitments from the signatory countries are not ambitious enough to combat climate change and its effects. The agreement also has no enforcement mechanism. That's why the next big global climate meeting in November of 2021 is so important. More than 200 world leaders are expected to gather in Glasgow at the COP26, which is short for the 26th meeting of the Conference of the Parties. COP26's main objective is to report on the progress made since the Paris Agreement and to make new decisions on how countries can further cut carbon emissions.
2: It is very clear that the COP, later this year, in November, will be crucially important to whether we have a safe future countries have agreed to raise their ambition with what are called their nationally determined contributions. The UN always goes in for fancy, long phrases, but what it means is promises of what those countries are going to do. That was the secret of Paris, that every country would promise, including the poorest, small island states, poorest countries, and many of those have really lived up to their promise to go as green as possible. Of course, they need support in doing it, but We've seen some really interesting things happen, even in the last few months. At the last General Assembly of the UN, the president of China startled the world in a good way by saying, China commits to being net zero carbon by at least 2060, meaning at the latest 2060. Nobody expected that. It was leadership. Following that, Japan, which is a very coal dependent country, said, We will be zero carbon by 2050. Korea said, we will be zero carbon by 2050. The European Union had been there already. The Biden administration has committed to be there. And some countries, and I'm glad the European Union is part of this, have already committed to their new ambitious goals. They'll still have to probably be ramped up further, but it's a good start.
1: And I might add to what Mary just said, and emphasize Biden, the change of government in the United States. Because if you have the most important country in the world, its president not believing in climate change, it's very difficult for other countries to really take action. But now the commitment of the Biden administration, and when they start really exercising and implementing that commitment, that would make a big difference. Because we are also seeing right now some very complicated dilemmas which have been produced by, for example, the pandemic. Poor countries or middle-income countries have a tremendous pressure to finance social investments to compensate what the pandemic has produced in terms of increasing poverty and all the negative consequences of the pandemic. Where do they get the resources from? The rich countries can use their central banks they can do whatever they need to do the middle income countries and the poor countries can do whatever they can do and what they can do is very limited in terms of resources and what we're seeing in many countries is a tremendous pressure by the oil industries by the coal industries to go back to what we had before the pandemic in terms of production of fossil fuels and that is a big mistake so If the countries that have the power to put conditions on the financing of these middle income countries and poor countries and force them to have a sustainable development plan, have sustainable policies, that will make a big difference. We cannot go back to normal. We have to go back to a sustainable path.
0: So... There is this race among some nations to go green and to go green faster. But on the other hand, there seems to be a lot of apathy and just dismissal of responsibility and pushing of responsibility. So what are the implications of inaction both from government and from corporate leaders?
1: Well, the implications of inaction is a disaster. As clear as that, if we, all the world, we don't make an effort, all the world will suffer. It's like COVID, everybody has to Be safe, otherwise nobody's safe. And that's why we have to put pressure on those countries or those corporations who would not like to take action or who don't believe or because of economic interest don't want to change their behavior and their way of producing or the way of developing. It is very important to exercise pressure, either by persuading, which is the best way, when you lead by persuasion and by example, it's more effective. But sometimes by forcing those countries. For example, I'll give you a specific example. One of the most important countries in terms of climate change and uh, biodiversity is Brazil. And you have there a president who doesn't believe in climate change. Well, in the very near future, country like the United States or the European countries must start telling Brazil, You want to sell your products in our markets? Well, you have to change your behavior in terms of the environment and climate change. This is absolutely necessary because everybody has to make an effort because everybody will pay the consequences.
2: I agree with Juan Manuel that the consequences of not taking the steps we urgently have to take is disastrous, is terrible. But I don't want people to go away feeling a total anxiety, because actually, I'm more hopeful than I was this time last January. This time last January, before COVID, I was worried because we were supposed to have our conference on climate in November 2020, and I didn't see any sign of the kind of collective ambition that was needed, either in government or in the private sector. And then COVID hit, and nobody would wish COVID on the world, but we learned lessons from COVID. We learned that collective human behavior matters, we learned that science matters, that government matters, we learned that compassion for that matter matters. We were all back you know, working from home, if we were lucky enough to have that work, and devastated in so many different ways, and, and understanding what is important and what work is important, and the frontline workers and all that. So, we're in a different place now, and I think there's a much, much more seriousness, I genuinely do, We're seeing more countries, as I said, committing to be zero carbon, zero emissions by 2050 all over the world. And, you know, there are studies now of scientists that show we can actually stay at that 1.5 degree world. And, you know, there's more scientific kind of hopeful analysis on that than I have seen before. And therefore, it's just an urgency of doing now, of committing to doing over the next very short time.
0: people around
2: the world are feeling
0: and seeing the effects of climate change firsthand. And yet there remains a significant sense of apathy. Many people still seem willing to ignore the problem. I ask the elders, how can we build empathy within communities that do not treat the climate issue with more urgency?
1: We need a lot of compassion, especially To the people who are more affected, the poorest, the most vulnerable, the ones that have been going through very difficult times, those are the ones that get more affected with climate change. And with this pandemic that is exacerbating, increasing the differences between the rich and the poor, I think now more than ever, we need to be conscious of that.
2: And, you know, COVID is a mirror to all of the things we've talked about, and the five layers that I explained of climate justice. Look at the United States. Who is more vulnerable? It is Black and brown and Indigenous people because they already have more poverty, less health care, more underlying conditions because of diet and other factors. It's rawly visible that they are more vulnerable. We do, on a daily basis, have to hear the stories of those who literally are at their mental you know, trauma because of what is happening to their communities. It's happening all the time now. And we're seeing it in the rich world. We're seeing it in fires in Australia. We're seeing it in fires in California, for that matter. And that brings home a little bit to the rich media world.
0: And we talk about empathetic leadership. And I want to kind of gear towards what type of leadership do we actually need to make progress. And so for us that keep, you know, looking and thinking that we're not able to influence governments, we're not able to influence the UN system, it's such a big machine. You both are examples of why connecting through hearts and stories of displacement and human suffering, we can actually start to influence the way politicians and elected leaders actually take our stories and create outcomes from them. So what type of examples do you have of stories of leadership that have made progress and what could we start amplifying more of to humanize this narrative
2: i was part of a women leaders network on gender and climate which consisted of women ministers of environment from different parts of the world and heads of agencies and we plotted first of all a gender action plan but we also asked those women ministers Please include in your delegation indigenous women, grassroots women, young women, because we need them at the table where the discussion is taking place, not out in the civil society area where you have such energy, it's a joy to be with these people, but nobody's listening. You know, they're away from where the decisions have been taken. And I can't tell you, I just saw it happen. The impact of an Indigenous woman getting up and talking truth. And talking to delegates who lived in cities and who were pen pushers for the words and phrases that they were dealing with, but not the reality behind those words and phrases, and to hear that reality spoken around the table. So in Glasgow, it's going to be very important to have that experience at the table.
1: And when you transfer that to what's happening today, who has been successful in confronting the pandemic? I'm glad to say, Mary, that has been women leaders in New Zealand, in Norway, in Germany, in Taiwan, in Finland. In contrast with this type of leadership, which is very authoritative, like uh, in the United States with Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil, or India, or even the UK. <laughs> there are very different type of leaders that have confronted the pandemic with a different approach and look who's doing much better. This type of leadership that creates confidence, creates trust and any public policy that wants to work needs that people believe in what the leader is saying. And so this is the type of leadership we also need for confronting climate change. Today, I'm pleased to announce... With the change of leadership in the United States,
0: all eyes are on the Biden administration to to lead the world in addressing the climate climate emergency. During his campaign, President Biden outlined a bold plan that includes achieving a 100% clean energy economy and a net zero emissions for the United States by no later than 2050.
2: Well, personally, I think it's so welcome, and so refreshing that we know that President Biden, as he said, is going to implement, you know, a very ambitious climate plan and a green recovery agenda. He's pledged two trillion U.S. dollars, and I know he still has to work his way through Congress. But I think there are a lot of Republicans who understand, increasingly, especially young Republicans, and um, the need for jobs, and they desperately need new infrastructure in the United States, clean infrastructure and new jobs, and they've lost out to China a lot on wind energy, solar energy, AI, and, you know, they need to regain more of a leadership role in those areas. So, it's in the interests of the United States. There's a Yale and George Mason survey that found that three quarters of Republican voters favor increased clean energy research. So, you know, it'll be difficult in the polarized atmosphere that uh, President Trump created in his time. But, you know, we have a new president now, and I think there is great hope that simply the practical exigencies for the United States, it's absolutely vital that the United States rapidly refines its leadership role and leads on this, and I have no doubt that he will do.
0: But you both touched on kind of the politics around climate change. Mary, you mentioned some of the statistics around the Republican voters and their perspectives. But how do we depoliticize the climate conversation? And why has this become such a political issue, specifically around partisan lines, not just in the United States, but globally? But number one, why is it such a political issue? And then number two is how do we depoliticize it?
1: I don't think that we have to depoliticize it. I think this is a political issue. And that needs political will. Maybe what we have to do is take it away from the partisan discussion. But we need political will at all levels. At the top, at the grassroots. You need the governors. You need the mayors. You need the private sector. You need the NGOs. And to have political will. So it's, on the contrary, I would say we have to politicize it in the good sense and take it away from The polarization, the party polarization, the petty political fights around parties involved at the top and at the bottom. And you do that by promoting the issue with the people, and especially the young people who have the power right now. And it's their future. And unfortunately, we're seeing that. We're seeing that all around the world. And that's why also I am uh, optimistic.
2: I very much agree with Juan Manuel. You can't say that this is not a political issue. Of course it is. It's the fundamental political issue about the future of people on the planet. The planet will survive if we are stupid enough to make ourselves extinct. It will flourish, in fact, because we won't be there to cause harm. But So it is political, and it is a matter of getting governments and the private sector to do what they need to do and investment, finance, to do what they need to do, I do really feel that every single one of us has to take ownership of the climate issue. How do we know we've taken ownership? We take the first step, which is to do something today that you weren't doing or weren't doing as well before, like recycling a bit more carefully, changing your diet a little bit, and being more aware of your impact, of your footprint in some way. Traveling less. I'll certainly be traveling a lot less in the future now that I know I can zoom a lot and do it this way. The second step is to get angry about those who are not taking responsibility and to urge governments to use your vote to get active with organizations that are advocating or conserving and doing good things. And the third thing, and this is such an important thing, it really is, we have to imagine this world that we are hurrying towards. We have to create in our minds a spiritual image of it that links with what the indigenous peoples are telling us. That world is a world that will be much healthier, that will have green, exciting jobs for young people, that will be much more linked to a solidarity globally because we need that to get to our future.
0: I'm going to ask a follow-up question that might not be one that either of you would like to hear. But why does there continue to be skepticism and climate denial? Why does there continue to be pushback?
2: I think, unfortunately, climate has suffered from a lot of the fake news divide, that polarization. And I think media have a big responsibility not to in any way allow for an equivalence of the pro and the contrary arguments. And I'm glad that more and more media are taking their responsibility and don't listen to wild theories or denial that's not based on science, as Juan Manuel rightly said. The children have pleaded with us to listen to the science. They said, don't listen to us. We're only children. Listen to the science. And that is one of the big lessons of COVID. We've listened to the health experts in lockdown now and increasing you know, steps that could take for an economy to open up, and we understand more, you know, that reality. We need to build on that, build on reassuring that expertise is not a bad thing. It's actually a necessary thing. It's a an important thing in giving us a genuine, objectively achieved future that we can believe in, and not to give time or space or airtime for the fake news that is so tied up with climate denial.
1: And sometimes many people don't want to hear the truth because of their own interests. Many uh, industries that uh, simply don't want to hear about climate change because they have to change their own industries. I have spoken with uh, some coal producers. Colombia is a big producer of coal. And they simply don't want to hear because they don't want to accept that they have to change. And so uh, that's why... We have to persuade them or, in many ways, force them to change.
2: And if I may, just one last point, because as somebody committed to climate justice, this is a very important part of climate justice, the just transition. We don't talk enough about just transition for the workers in the coal and oil and gas. Workers in coal are being abandoned in parts of the United States in a horrible way. The European Union has its just transition mechanism is putting a lot of money into helping countries like Poland, for example, that's coal dependent, because it's important to give jobs and future to the workers and their communities. It's not easy, but it's absolutely essential. And I know the Biden administration is committed to this, and we will see a lot more discussion about how to bring everybody with us in a way that I think will help to diffuse the fake news and the denial, which is nonsense now.
0: In spite of the narrative that counteracts climate cooperation and action by countries, including political and business leaders, as well as its citizens, the elders believe that there is room to bring messages of hope and optimism.
2: This is a crucial moment for humanity. We are faced with a choice of a better future, a safer, healthier, a more interesting future for young people with green jobs and all that potential and living with nature in a way which will be very fulfilling and exciting and spiritually rewarding. Or having the world facing the worst phenomenon of what we've been seeing already. And it's pretty bad. To have that get worse and worse for future generations to me is unconscionable, unforgivable. So it's on our watch. We are the generation, the first generation to fully understand the implications of climate change and the last generation with an opportunity to address and come out of it well.
0: To emphasize what Mary said, this is a crucial moment for humanity. And it's on us, all of us, to challenge climate injustice and to create change. Climate change impacts us all. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. You have the power to make a difference in the fight against climate change. Please join us. I want to thank Mary Robinson and Juan Manuel Santos for joining me on the first episode of our new Finding Humanity podcast special series with the Elders. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Before we go, I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like our show, please rate it, leave us a review and share it to encourage other people to tune in. For other opportunities to engage with us and for additional programming around this series, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of our producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This special series is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. And our research and policy lead is Carolina Mendica. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.